an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let me go back to that first lecture. Um, some of you heard it, some didn't, but I'd like to return to it um, and pull out this one quote that I am using as a kind of antiphon at the beginning and the end of these lectures. Um, one author on Newman wrote that Newman stands at the threshold of the new age as a Christian Socrates, the pioneer of a new philosophy of the individual person and personal life. And so my goal in these lectures is to unpack the truth in that prophetic utterance, as I think it is. Now, in our last meeting, I explained briefly what I meant by personalism. And then I proceeded in my first lecture to examine not any particular teaching of Newman on persons, but rather a certain personalist style of his thought. So I examined a certain concreteness of his thought, which I tried to explain in terms taken from his own work, The Grammar of Ascent. And I said, Newman's thought is distinctly concrete because he is impatient with notional apprehension and is at home in real apprehension. I tried to show how eminently true that is of his sermons, their uncanny power to touch into life old truths comes from the way Newman is constantly converting notional into real apprehension. Now, <clears throat> after the lecture, I got a number of very good questions from the audience, and we'll hopefully uh, repeat that experience again tonight. Um, and there's one in question in particular that uh, gave me uh, a lot to think about. Somebody asked, who else at Newman's time was exploring concrete ways of thinking like Newman. And I don't know how it happened that I failed to mention the obvious, namely Newman's great contemporary Kierkegaard was doing something very similar to what I was ascribing to Newman. And I just want, by way of an addendum to the first lecture, to um, add here something on Kierkegaard. Uh, in a very early journal entry, Kierkegaard writes, deploring a certain kind of intellectual barrenness. He says, what would be the use of discovering so-called objective truth, uh, of working through all the systems of philosophy? and being able to review them all and show up their inconsistencies within each system, what good would it do me to be able to develop a theory of the state and combine all the details into a single whole and so construct a world in which I did not live but only held up to the view of others? What good would it do me to be able to explain the meaning of Christianity if it had no deeper significance for me and my life, what good would it do me if truth stood before me, cold and naked, not caring whether I recognized her or not? Now, Kierkegaard it goes on in that journal entry to say that he is not looking for any such objective truth, but rather for a truth, as he says, for which I can live and die. He also, in that entry, calls it truth which grows together with the deepest roots of my being, through which I am, so to speak, grafted upon the divine. You know that Kierkegaard is acknowledges the father of so-called existentialism in philosophy. We can say that he expresses here a deep aspiration 
not just for objective truth, but existential truth, that is, not for truth to be observed in the manner of a spectator, but to be dwelt in, to be lived, a truth that grows together with the deepest roots of our life, as he says. Now, Kierkegaard's objective truth is not hard to find in Newman. Notional apprehension, in the sense of Newman, is apprehension of objective truth in the sense of Kierkegaard. Both thinkers are aiming at a truth that is somehow outside of me, at a distance to me, truth that leaves me cold even when acknowledged. Real apprehension closes this distance, giving me an experiential immediacy to the truth apprehended and enabling the truth to engage me as a whole person. So Newman's real apprehension clearly tends to converge with Kierkegaard's existential truth. So uh, at bottom, Kierkegaard wants to get away from being a mere spectator of truth and becoming a full participant in it. Now, it's very helpful to think of Newman's contrast between notional and real in terms of spectator and participant. So with the help of Kierkegaard, we can develop Newman's distinction in his spirit beyond, his, beyond the letter of his text. Well, that's just a footnote to the last lecture, stimulated by a very thoughtful question it didn't get the answer it deserved at the time. Uh, but now I want to turn to a new aspect of Newman's personalism. Uh, and I've entitled this lecture tonight, The Human Person Before God. There is a depersonalizing way of viewing our place in society and in the cosmos and it comes very natural to us. I refer to the way in which we are so easily awed by the immensity of our social world. There are, after all, over seven billion of us alive on the earth at present. And awed by the immensity of the cosmos. We feel ourselves to be mere specks in these vast totalities. Each of us is only one seven billionth of humanity, and each is an even smaller fractional part of the cosmos. There is also temporal immensity. It too annihilates our sense of being something important and reduces us to feeling like a negligible quantity, whether we see ourselves within the untold number of human generations, or within the eons of geological history, or within the 13 and a half billion years that make up cosmic history. Set within such bewildering immensities, each one of us seems to be inconceivably small and insignificant. Our fleeting moment of presence within these immensities seems to make no difference to them. Now, I want to say that in experiencing our inconceivable smallness like this, we lose all sense of ourselves as persons. You cannot experience yourself as person and at the same time experience yourself as just one among innumerably many. Or as so small a speck that there is virtually no difference between a world with you in it and a world without you. A truly personalist philosophy insists that our inconceivable smallness is not the last word, but that in some important respect, we are not entirely encompassed by these totalities, and so have a significance that cannot be swallowed up by them. Thus, we see a certain personalist impulse 
at work in Kant when he famously contrasts the starry sky above us and the moral law within us. You philosophy majors must remember that passage from the end of the Critique of Practical Reason. Well, Kant says that in standing under the starry sky, we feel indeed annihilated in our importance as animal creatures, but that in experiencing the moral law in our conscience, we encounter ourselves as persons, and I quote, in which the moral law reveals a life independent of all animality and even of the whole world of sense. This significance revealed in moral consciousness is, Kant says, quote, not restricted to the conditions and limits of this life, but reaches into the infinite. Note how Kant distinguishes between man as animal and man as person, and how he insists that it is as person that man is no longer vulnerable to the annihilating effect of the immensity of space-time. Now, I find that Newman grasps with great intuitive power the fact that man as person is not completely contained in this immensity. Newman achieves, we could say using the language of the last lecture, a deep real apprehension of this and in this way enhances the personalism of his thought. So let's look into uh, Newman's sermon. Uh, he was about 35 when he preached this sermon entitled The Individuality of the Soul, in which he begins by considering how natural it is for us to let individual human beings be completely absorbed in social holes, holes, W-H-O-L-E, uh, to which they belong, and how natural it is for us to yield to that depersonalizing perspective that I just mentioned. And so he says, nothing is more difficult than to realize that every man has a distinct soul, that every one of the millions who live or have lived is as whole and independent a being in himself as if there were no one else in the whole world but he. To explain what I mean. Do you think that a commander of an army realizes it when he sends a body of men on some dangerous service? I am not speaking as if he were wrong in so sending them. I only ask, in matter of fact, does he, think you, commonly understand that each of those poor men has a soul, a soul as dear to himself, as precious in its nature as his own? Or does he not rather Look on the body of men collectively, as one mass, as parts of a whole, as but the wheels or springs of some great machine to which he assigns the individuality, not to each soul that goes to make it up. And Newman continues, this instance will show what I mean and how open we all lie to the remark that we do not understand the doctrine of the distinct individuality of the human soul. We class men in masses, as we might connect the stones of a building. Consider our common way of regarding history, politics, commerce, and the like, and you will own that I speak truly. When this man dies and that one dies, we forget that it is the passage of separate immortal beings into an unseen state, and that the whole which appears is but appearance, and that the component parts are the realities. No, we think nothing of this. But though fresh and fresh men die, and fresh and fresh men are born, so that the whole is ever shifting, yet we forget all that drop away, and are insensible to all that are added, 
And we still think that this whole, which we call the nation, is one and the same, that the individuals who come and go exist only in it and for it and are but as the grains of a heap or the leaves of a tree. You see, as Newman says here, it is a question of parts and wholes. Where are the real wholes and what are their parts? Newman says we all strongly incline to take some social group as the real whole, with the individual human being serving as mere parts of it. Newman challenges us to look more closely and to realize that the real whole is, first of all, the individual person. A social group is never a whole in the strong and proper sense in which an individual person is a whole. When persons live together in some social group, they can never be so encompassed by the group, so contained in it as to be mere parts of it. We should instead say, using a striking expression of Jacques Maritain, that they exist as holes within a whole. In this same sermon, now Newman goes on to give forceful expression to the wholeness of each individual person. Uh, he says, uh, and I continue quoting right where I had left off, or again, survey some populous town. Crowds are pouring through the streets, some on foot, some in carriages. While the shops are full and the houses too, could we see into them? Every part of it is full of life. Hence, we gain a general idea of splendor, magnificence, opulence, and energy. But what is the truth? Why, that every being in that great concourse is his own center. And all things about him are but shades, but a vain shadow in which he walketh and disquieteth himself in vain. He has his own hopes and fears desires, judgments, and aims. He is everything to himself, and no one else is really anything. No one outside of him can touch him, can touch his soul. He has, this is a really memorable expression of Newman's, he has a depth within him unfathomable, an infinite abyss of existence. And the social scene in which he bears part for the moment is but like a gleam of sunshine upon its surface. And of that quote. Notice that Newman does not just say that each person feels himself from the inside to be something vaster and more real than the surrounding social world. You could, after all, uh, say, well, this, that's just a feeling. Um, it's a natural optical illusion, a natural egocentrism by which we lose our grip on the modest significance that each one of us, in fact, has. No, Newman thinks that in this feeling, real metaphysical truth is experienced from within, namely the truth that each of us really lives out of an infinite abyss of existence. So what? looks like megalomania, is really, Newman wants to say, the very truth of our being. So it, it, it's remarkable how in this passage, Newman completely reverses our natural way of thinking about persons in society. The social whole, in the view of Newman, is no longer the dominant reality. It is reduced to a gleam of sunshine upon the surface of the individual person. The social whole does not itself have a depth unfathomable, does not have an infinite abyss of existence, since the individual person experiences within himself this infinite abyss of existence. He knows himself 
as a being far too real and powerful to be completely contained in any social group, as a mere part of the group. As person, he is incommensurable with any social group. The smallness he may have as replaceable member of the group should not be taken as a smallness as person. Now, I have been speaking here with this wonderful sermon in front of me, the individuality of the soul of human person set within a large social world. If we turn from a social to a cosmic setting, we get the same result. The infinitesimally short duration of my life when compared with the 13 and a half billion year duration of the universe and the infinitesimally small space that I occupy in the universe and the uncountable number of beings in the midst of which I find myself do not for human have the effect of reducing me to insignificance as person. I have an infinite abyss of existence that the universe, for all its spatiotemporal immensity, does not have. Perhaps Newman would have said that the whole cosmos is but a gleam of sunshine upon the surface of my being. And he would have thereby made a profound personalist utterance, and one right along the line of the statements he does make. Now, um, the next thing we want to know is how a person awakens to the infinite abyss of existence in himself. For it is all too natural for us to experience ourselves as entirely embedded in the social and natural worlds that we inhabit. Thus Newman says in another sermon, to a child, this world is everything. He seems to himself a part of the world, a part of this world in the same sense in which a branch is part of a tree. He has little notion of his own separate and independent existence. So how does that child awaken, according to Newman, to a sense of its real metaphysical stature. Well, Newman goes on in this sermon now just quoted uh, called The Immortality of the Soul. Um, he goes on to describe a certain restlessness that when it stirs in us, destroys this childlike feeling of being completely contained in the world. He describes it like this. The unprofitableness and feebleness of the things of this world are forced upon our minds. They promise but cannot perform. They disappoint us. Or if they do perform what they promise, still so it is, they do not satisfy us. We crave for something we know not what, but we are sure it is something which the world has not given us. End of that quote. So for Newman, we're thrown back on ourselves and pulled out of our snug fit in the world and begin to glimpse something of that mysterious incommensurability of ourselves with the social and natural worlds we inhabit. Or as Newman puts it, we come uh, experiencing this restlessness in ourselves to feel our separation from things visible, our independence of them, our distinct existence in ourselves, our individuality. End of that quote. And when you read in uh, the other sermons of Newman, 
you find other ways uh, in which we can, as it were, come to ourselves as a being with this infinite abyss of existence. So, for instance, uh, our moral experience plays a large role for Newman in uh, awakening this sense of our real selves. In this respect, Newman is close to Kant, uh, who, as we saw, thinks that man is lifted above the immensity of space-time by his relation to the moral law. As he says, being subject to the moral law, man shows himself as person, and his life acquires a significance that transcends the limits of earthly existence. Now, Newman is right along that same line. And in fact, I'm going to quote here a sentence that I used in the first uh, lecture that uh, makes my point exactly. You may recall that uh, in the first lecture, I quoted Newman saying, there is something in moral truth and goodness, in faith, in firmness, in heavenly-mindedness, in meekness, in courage, in loving-kindness, to which this world's circumstances are quite unequal, for which the longest life is insufficient, which makes the highest opportunities of this world disappointing, which must burst the prison of this world to have its appropriate range. So this latter expression, burst the prison of this world to have its appropriate range, expresses what I've been calling the incommensurability of a human person with the spatiotemporal frame of reference of our earthly existence. So moral experience is a way in which we can be, as it were, dislodged from uh, this embeddedness in the world. But I want to turn to the deepest source of Newman's thought on how we discover the infinite abyss of existence in ourselves. This deepest source is the relation of each person to God. It is only before God that each person awakens to the infinite abyss of existence in himself. Let us turn to one of the greatest of Newman's sermons, the sermons of Augustinian grandeur entitled, The Thought of God, The Stay of the Soul, in which he achieves a real apprehension of this religious dimension of the infinite abyss of existence in each person. So he opens uh, here with a reflection on human happiness. And he says, the happiness of the soul consists in the exercise of the affections, not in sensual pleasures, not in activity, not in excitement, not in self-esteem, not in the consciousness of power, not in knowledge. In none of these things lies our happiness, but in our affections being elicited, employed, supplied. Our real and true bliss lies in the possession of those objects on which our hearts may rest and be satisfied. Now, Newman proceeds to say that only in relation to God can all the affections of which we are capable awaken. Even though this encounter with God is in the darkness of faith, it's only there that the human heart can fully, as it were, awaken and expand. In relation to finite, Beings, the human heart can stir, but it cannot come fully alive. If we lived only in relation to finite things, we would never know how vast our heart is, nor suspect the infinite abyss of existence in it. And so Newman says, we may indeed love created things with great intenseness. But such affection, when disjoined from the love of the Creator, is like a stream running in a narrow channel, impetuous, vehement, turbid. The heart runs out, as it were, 
only at one door. It is not an expanding of the whole man. Created natures cannot open us or elicit the 10,000 mental senses which belong to us and through which we really live. None but the presence of our Maker can enter us, or to none besides can the whole heart in all its thoughts and feelings be unlocked and subjected. We know that even our dearest friends enter into us but partially, whereas the consciousness of a perfect and enduring presence, and it alone keeps the heart open, withdraw the divine object on which it rests, and the heart will relapse again into its state of confinement and constraint. And in proportion, as it is limited, either to certain seasons or to certain affections, the heart is straightened and distressed. If it be not overbold to say it, he who is infinite can alone be its measure. He alone can answer to the mysterious assemblage of feelings and thoughts which it has within it. End of the quote. So, in a living relation to God, we experience ourselves as kapax dei, that is, as having a capacity for God, and therefore having an infinite capacity, an infinite abyss of existence. Without this relation to God, we would not know ourselves, would never suspect our infinite capacity, and so would underestimate ourselves and remain vulnerable to being intimidated by the immensity of space-time and to being depersonalized. But once we encounter, this is Newman's thought, once we encounter God as the measure of our heart, we come to ourselves. We experience the 10,000 senses by which we really live and are freed once and for all, freed from thinking of ourselves as mere cosmic specks. Now, this encounter with God in which we are revealed to ourselves as persons who refuse to be completely contained in any social, natural, or cosmic whole, it is for Newman an eminently personal encounter. If it were not a personal encounter, it would not save us from being intimidated by the immense totalities in which we find ourselves. For consider, if, if we think that the whole world is the primary object of divine attention, each individual man or woman being seen by him only as a part of the whole, but not being seen, in his or her own right, then the encounter with God would not save us from depersonalization. The cosmic smallness that I spoke of would not be overcome, but would, on the contrary, be ratified by the encounter with God. So the encounter with God enables us to come to ourselves as persons only if it is an encounter face to face, in which I am called by name. And so I turn now to a great sermon, a personal, no, excuse me, a particular providence revealed in the gospel uh, for Newman's richest thought on this, on the personal character of this encounter with God. Now, in this sermon, um, if I have a short list of maybe the five or ten greatest sermons of Newman, this one, this one is uh, certainly on a, uh, a particular providence as revealed in the gospel. So he opens uh, reflecting on how difficult we find it to realize that God deals 
personally with us, he says. Men talk in a general way of the goodness of God, his benevolence, compassion, and long-suffering. But they think of it as a flood, pouring itself out all through the world as the light of the sun, not as the continually repeated action of an intelligent and living mind, contemplating whom it visits and intending what it effects. Accordingly, when they come into trouble, they can but say, it is all for the best, God is good, and the like, and this does but fall as coal comfort upon them and does not lessen their sorrow because they have not accustomed themselves to feel that he is a merciful God regarding them individually and not as a mere universal providence acting by general laws. End of that quote. Newman even recognizes that we incline to think, when we start to think about it, that a particular providence aiming at each of us personally is somehow unworthy of God. So he says, we think, how shall he who is most holy direct his love to this man or that for the sake of each, contemplating us one by one without infringing on his own perfections? No. Newman finds a way to this particular providence of God, though it's hard and we constantly miss it. He finds a very resourceful uh, way by listening to the human heart. He says, men of keener hearts would be overpowered by despondency and would even loathe existence did they suppose themselves under the mere operation of fixed laws, powerless to excite the pity or the attention of him who has appointed them. End of that very significant sentence. So for all the dignity of universal laws and necessary truths, indeed for all the divine character of universality and necessity, we are, Newman says, oppressed by a God who could only be understood in terms of them. We have a profound need for God living and seeing. And he goes so far, as you saw, to say that we would loathe existence if God were only some universal law with which no interpersonal relation were possible. Well, there's no problem identifying Newman's personalism here. I cannot be lost in the cosmos if God knows me as the individual person I am, if I appear before him as if the only person. My smallness within the immensity of space-time is not the last word, it's not an absolute smallness. It is as if, as if something of the immensity of God were somehow imparted to me when he sees me individually and deals with me individually. Only in this personal encounter do the 10,000 senses by which I really live awaken. I might point out that there's another aspect of Newman's personalism in this great uh, sermon. So far, I've been mainly considering the person in contrast to the quantitative immensity of space-time. Uh, and that contrast does indeed bring out uh, something about the person. But there is another contrast which brings out another dimension of personal being, and that's the contrast with universality and necessary law. This other dimension emerges in the sermon when Newman says that religion is fundamentally interpersonal, that God deals with individual persons, taking each of us as if he or she were the only person. And especially deep, and a deep personalist thought 
uh, uh, to my mind, is this idea that each of us has this elementary need to be known by God, not through the lens of some universal, but as individual person, and to be called by name. That's very forceful language when Newman says, we would loathe existence if that kind of personal encounter with God were not possible. All right, now that um, uh, lays out the, the train of thought, the personalist train of thought that I had chosen for this um, lecture. But before concluding, I want to consider a difficulty that arises for Newman. One could think that Newman goes too far with this affirmation of the incommensurability of each person with society and with the cosmos. Persons, you might say, seem, on his account, to be almost strangers in the world. They seem not really to belong to it, but to belong to some other world of spirits. It is almost as if we human persons had somehow gotten trapped in the material world and we're longing for deliverance from it. We seem, in any case, not to be really rooted in social groups and in the universe. One could get that impression from uh, some of Newman's expressions. And the problem is this doesn't sound quite Christian. Doesn't even sound quite right philosophically. Now, <coughs> Newman never poses this objection, uh, and so he doesn't answer it. But let me try to answer it in his spirit. And the, the, what I want to do is try to explain how this incommensurability of each person with these holes in which we're situated coheres completely with everything true in the objection, everything true about how we're made for society and have a natural place in the cosmos. So consider first how we exist within human communities, like our family or our nation or state. It is, of course, true that I receive much of my identity from these familial and national ties that bind me. But Newman would have no need to depreciate these familial and national ties because we do not have to think of ourselves as mere parts of the communities to which we belong. I can, for example, live in a family and be deeply formed by it and yet be present in the family as one who is always more than just a fractional part of the family. On the other hand, deep family ties are in no way compromised or weakened just because my siblings and parents and I are not mere parts of the familial whole. Just because each of us has an identity that exceeds the identity that comes from our familial connectedness. Even in participating in large communities like the political community, where the danger is greater of being overwhelmed in a quantitative way, I do not have to understand myself as a mere part of it, but I can stay fully intact as person, even while fully participating in it. If, for instance, my basic human rights are recognized, if, if I am protected against being simply used for the good of the whole community, against being destroyed for its benefit, then I am recognized as person, even though I am one citizen among thousands. So everything that social philosophers, like Alistair MacIntyre, great contemporary um, Catholic philosopher, say about recovering a sense of solidarity with others, a sense of our deep social nature, everything they say against individualism in social life, coheres with what Newman says about this incommensurability of persons. Newman just gives us a way 
of distinguishing between a real community of persons and a collectivistic mass in which individuals are reduced to mere parts of the mass. Now, consider next our place in the cosmos. One could maybe particularly come away with the thought that we're strangers there, free-floating, not really belonging to it. Uh, like when he speaks of the whole world being like uh, a mere gleam of sunshine on the surface of my consciousness. Well, Christians want to say that we are not just waiting to escape from the immensity of the cosmos, but that we have a very definite place in it, and not just a temporary place. Some have spoken, uh, my uh, dear friend Father Norris Clark, often uh, a visitor here, developed this idea in his writings, spoken of the priestly position of man in the universe, by which they mean that man, existing as he does, like St. Thomas says, at the border of matter and spirit, has the task of mediating between matter and spirit, of spiritualizing matter and embodying spirit. Sometimes one develops this idea by making the bold statement that in the human person, the universe becomes conscious of itself, and that the human person is therefore sufficiently united with the material universe to be able to give voice to its praise of God. This means that we don't just offer praise to God in the midst of an alien world, but that we take this world into our praise, giving it the voice that it does not have on its own. On this view, the human person is no stranger in the world, but performs a unique work of cosmic integration and exercises a unique kind of cosmic leadership. But notice that the human person does not belong in the world with this particular task uh, in such a way as to be overwhelmed by it and reduced to insignificance by it. In forming the center of it, the integrating center of it, uh, he is saved from being lost in the spatio-temporal immensity. And as for the fact that the material universe does not completely contain us as a mere part of itself, this does not at all interfere with our indispensable position in the universe. On the contrary, our ability to spiritualize matter and to exercise cosmic leadership presupposes that we as persons exceed the world of matter and are in some sense incommensurable with it. Now, I repeat, this fascinating perspective of man exercising a kind of priestly function within creation is not to be found in Newman. But Newman's, let me call it, incommensurability intuition, which we've been studying in this lecture, can be joined to this perspective and can provide one of the cornerstones that support this perspective. It's not as if, in other words, you've got to sort of restore human beings just to parts and, and insignificant parts of the cosmic whole in order to make sense of their natural place in it. Now, one last thought and then I am finished. There's one further step I want to take by way of defending Newman against the objection. At the heart of Newman's thought, there is something that strongly inclines him to think of human persons as rooted in the world and not so incommensurable with the world as to be aliens in it. I refer to Newman's deep sense of and respect for the rhythm of time and of history. If we look into his most seminal theological treatise, the essay on the development of Christian doctrine, we find a highly original account 
of the historical existence of Christians. He says that the understanding that Christians have of Revelation is not complete all at once, is not exactly the same in each generation, but unfolds. He uses the analogy of the plant unfolding and growing. Unfolds in history, new aspects of Revelation coming to light in response to the new challenges of each era. And this historical existence is not just for believers, it is for Newman the human condition. How often does he say that some good thing is not possible in the present generation, but will be possible in some future generation? Every good thing has its time. That he understood in a, with, with a great depth of understanding. Every good thing has its time, and great harm can be done, he often said, if one tries to force the good thing into existence before its time. So I want to say Newman's keen sense of our temporality, of our dwelling in the rhythms of history, has the effect of keeping human persons, for all the infinite abyss of existence in each of them, rooted on the earth and in their bodies. And so I conclude that there is a world of deep Christian personalism in Newman's real apprehension of the depth unfathomable, the infinite abyss of existence that is revealed in each person standing before God. In another thinker, this sense of the infinity in each person might have led to a distorted individualism or to an acosmic religion, more Gnostic than Christian, but not, not in human. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.